Good evening, friends. My topic for tonight is anatta, or not-self. <coughs> and uh, really the, a question, what can this teaching on anatta, or not-self, offer to this wobbly, often wobbly, often rather fraught sense of being me? And um, this is a huge, a big topic that can make the sense of me quite wobbly. Um, So I'm just going to offer some reflections on it that uh, feel alive for me right now. So the starting point really for understanding the teaching of not-self is the recognition of impermanence that Greg was speaking about so beautifully on Monday. This recognition that the world is in a constant process of arising and passing away. And I'll just reread a few lines from the second of the poems that I read last week that also uh, describe this. Phenomena on every plane of being are constantly arising and disappearing. Thus they are forever fresh, always new and inexhaustible. Like dreams without solid substance, they can never become rigid or binding. The universe exists in a deep, elusive way that can never be grasped or frozen. And then there's a description here that I'd like to share from um, Carlo Rovelli, who's a contemporary theoretical physicist who specializes in the understanding of space and time. And he says, We can think of the world as made up of things, of substances, of entities, of something that is. Or we can think of it as made up of events, of happenings, of processes, of something that occurs, something that undergoes continual transformation. And this way of thinking of it is actually the only way that's compatible with modern physics. The difference between things and events is that things persist in time. Events have a limited duration. A stone is a prototypical thing. We can ask ourselves, where will it be tomorrow? Conversely, a kiss is an event. It makes no sense to ask where the kiss will be tomorrow. The world is made up of networks of kisses, not of stones. (laughs) On closer inspection... Even the things that are most thing-like, like stones, are nothing more than long events. And he goes on to, to explain that the nature of these event things is shaped by the way that they're perceived by the observer. Even our perception of time, even the directionality of time is shaped by our human perspective and conditioning. And there's actually no such thing as a perspectiveless perspective. The universe does indeed exist in a deep, elusive way that can never be grasped or frozen. And this was recognised, has been recognised, you know, many times in the past and it's reflected in the Buddha's term for reality yatabhuta which means things as they've come to be in this moment there's no other word for reality in the vocabulary of the Buddha the Buddha of the Pali Canon but our ordinary perception 
operates in a kind of shorthand for convenience by seeing things as events or entities. And we need this for functioning and communicating. So we could, for example, think about IMS. What is IMS? Is it a piece of land with buildings on it? trees and the grounds? Is it a community? Is it a particular constellation of individuals? For some people it's a workplace or employer. To a lawyer it might be a corporate entity, owner of property. Is it a history, the story of a a lineage of different teachers who founded it and have continued it and people who've practiced here? Is it an ethos or a vibe of some sort? A field of practice? Many of us regard it as a kind of mothership of our Dharma practice. But if your perspective were different, you might find it, you know, a rather suspicious cult. (laughs) (laughs) So how you define it depends on your, how you feel about it and also on the, the context of the conversation, whom you're talking to and what the context is. But we just, for the convenience purposes, we refer to it as IMS. But the trouble is that we believe that this shorthand perception is reality. And the Buddha had a word for this. He called it a vipalasa, which means a distortion of perception. And this is the nature of perception. It's not a sign of personal stupidity. that we tend to perceive things rather than events. So this is the vipalasa number one, the first distortion of perception that the Buddha identified, taking the impermanent to be permanent, or what's changing to be somehow solid. And this lack of solidity applies also to us, So each of us, too, is a network not of stones, but of kisses. And we're both no more and no less than that. So who am I? Who are we? Carlo Rovelli again says... A human being is a complex process which food, information, light, words and so on enter and exit. A knot of knots in a network of social relations, in a network of chemical processes, in a network of emotions exchanged with its own kind. We're made up, really, of stories. So who, who am I, Jaya? I could give you a story of relationships to family, you know, whose daughter and granddaughter I am, of relationships to a culture that I'm British, or a period of history that I was born in or live in, which itself is a story. I could give you my resume, which I prefer not to do. (laughs) You you notice already how stressful it is when we're asked to account for ourselves in certain ways. And none of these things completely answer the question of who we are. And many of the ways that we habitually speak of ourselves or describe ourselves kind of are inconsistent with one another. 
So I talk about, I talk in certain times as if I am this body. And yet I can also talk about being the owner of the body. I can talk about as if I am a story. And yet I'm also the owner of the story. And yet these stories are the only way that we can account for ourselves. And I think this really arises in the, in the dukkha of meeting one another. You know, we want to be seen and understood, but we somehow can never fully... Uh, we don't see the totality of the stories that make one another up. Yeah, I, I, I feel for you coming to the practice meetings sometimes. You know, you have such a, a microscopic space of time in which to feel heard and seen and understood. And we cannot possibly, you know, in that time, get to know as much of your story as you may feel is relevant to share. And then at the same time, we also don't want to be defined by those stories. So there's a kind of catch-22 thing that happens. And part of our practice uh, in walking this path is to learn to meet one another, you know, independently of the stories. So these stories are what we call sankharas, mental constructs, mental formations, fabrications is the word that Tanisaro Bhikkhu uses. And the Buddha likened them to the leaves of a plantain tree, which is a tree which the, it just has a, the, the, the trunk is just made of the leaves round one another like a, like a sheath. So there's no solid core to that tree, kind of like the leaves of an onion And when we want to get to the bottom of these stories, we're kind of like the child who asks why. And you give them an answer and they say, but why that? You give them another answer, well, why, why, why? And you end up just saying, well, because. (laughs) (laughs) So we're events, not things. We're not, we're not human beings, but we're human becomings. Human comings and goings, actually. And again, this is reflected in the Buddha's language, in the, the word that he used to refer to himself, the Tathagata, which means the one who is thus come or thus gone. Later in the tradition, it gets sometimes translated as the perfect one, which is really misleading. It's just an example of the way that we grab onto things and try to solidify them. And so this is the the second vipalasa, or distortion of perception, is to see self in what is not self, to assume that I or anything else has some abiding self-essence. And this assumption is kind of reinforced by language because acquiring a sense of self, which we need to do in order to become a, a functioning human being, involves learning to use certain names and pronouns, such as I and me and mine and myself that create the illusion that there must be something there behind them that's being referred to. So we start to assume that itself and myself and yourself have some kind of solid existence rather than just being terms of convenience whose meaning shifts with the changing conditions. And this is the lack of solidity or the emptiness that the Buddha pointed to with the teaching of on anatta, not self. And even in the time of the Buddha, people found it confusing. And they would ask him, so are you saying there's no self? And 
the Buddha refused to answer the question when it was posed in those terms, to answer that question. So is there a self or is there not a self? Because it was the wrong question. So I can't remember who said this. I think it's Suzuki Roshi who said, who sort of summed it up as saying, it's not that you don't exist. It's just that you don't exist in the way that you think you do. It's not that you're not real, you're just not really real. (laughs) (laughs) This is the, the... This predicament, really, um, is the essence of the third form of dukkha that Rebecca spoke about, what's called sankhara dukkha, the constructed nature of things, that anatta or not-self is the, the other side of that same coin. And we experience this as problematic, when we don't really understand it. So, um, David Loy, who I've quoted before, Zen teacher, says that the sense of self can never become secure because it is no thing, nothing, that could be secure. How can something that doesn't really exist become secure and he he says that he feels we suffer from a repressed sense of unreality you could see in your experience whether that describes the feel of it and that this repressed sense of unreality expresses itself as a sense of lack or incompleteness or the sense that something's wrong with with life which is again what Rebecca spoke about when she talked about Sankara Dukkha. And then what we do because of that is we spend our time going about trying to fix it, trying to complete ourself with material things or relationships or achievements or progress of some kind. And the harder we try to do that, the more we reinforce this illusion of being an empty entity uh, separate from the rest of the world. Often vulnerable, frequently lonely, and repeatedly frustrated. So what do we do? (laughs) The Buddha's remedy for this predicament is to meet it with compassion and understanding because the lack of a solid self isn't the problem. The problem is the misguided ways that we behave as a result. So one thing that we can do is to get really familiar and comfortable with the predicament by the practice of calmly noticing change which is this practice of mindfulness that we've been engaging in. Cultivating and attuning ourselves to the perception of impermanence. So the Buddha's advice to Rahula, his son, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you are developing meditation of the perception of impermanence, the conceit I am will be abandoned. And another thing we can do is to cultivate the perception of not-self. This is the the subject of the Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristics of not-self, which is traditionally um, held to be the the second teaching that the Buddha ever gave after expounding the Four Noble Truths. So this comes in between the Four Noble Truths and the fire sermon that I spoke about the other week. And in this discourse on the characteristics of not-self, the Buddha talks about five categories of events or 
if we take this process language, five processes or streams of experiencing that we tend to form identities around, that we grasp onto. What are known as the upadana kanda, the kandas or heaps or collections of stuff that are subject to upadana or clinging. The processes that are clung to. And this isn't the only way that we can um, pass out or map the world of our inner experience, but it was one that the Buddha found very useful, uh, especially for the teaching of not-self. So I want to just speak fairly briefly about these five categories of experience streams of experiencing. So the first is rupa or material form, which is all the stuff of sense contact and sense impingement. It's what gives rise to the sense of where I am, to a location in space. The second is Vedana, or feeling tone, that current of pleasantness and unpleasantness, which, from which we create the sense of how I am. I'm happy or not happy, enjoying this, not enjoying this. The third is Sanya, or perception, the mental concepts or the labels that identify things. You, me the bell, the cushion that tells me what I am. I'm a yogi listening to a Dhamma talk. And the fourth is sankharas or fabrications, these mental formations, all the stories and the beliefs and the thoughts, the impulses, all the constructs that are elaborated out of the building blocks of perception. And you could say that they give us the meaning, why I am, why I'm here doing this, why I do that. And then the last one, the fifth one, is vijnana or consciousness, that sense of me being the knower and the experiencer of all these things. And... All these candors are arising simultaneously and interacting with one another. So they form one of these networks, a network that is in itself an open system that's interacting with innumerable other networks. And it's not that the Buddha was saying that these streams of experience in themselves were the problem but it's the grasping of them in the wrong way that gives rise to dukkha. So the Buddha is still, a, um, an, an, or an arahant, an awakened being, is still a collection of these five processes, but the five processes no longer clung to. They're five processes without clinging. So the Buddha's um, teaching to these five ascetics who were his uh, audience of students for this, this particular teaching was to notice how each of these uh, streams of experience is changing over time, changing all the time, and to notice whether or not they had any control over it. And to notice the suffering that arises from identifying with what we can't control and trying to hold on to something that's slipping away from us. So form or the body is not really in control, is it? If you you think about what you might like to be controlling right now in your body, either in the immediate present or the wider present. When we identify with a body that's subject to aging and sickness and death, 
the sense of dukkha that comes from having an identity that is bound up with our the status of our health or our appearance. This is a, a source of suffering. Also, actually, the, a sense of self that's dependent on the form of the outer, the external environment, which is also out of our control, the weather, the conditions around us. And the Buddha likened this experience of body or form to being like foam, something that just uh, takes a certain shape for a while and dissolves. And there's a certain kind of relief, isn't there, to letting it go. I don't have to make this body perfect, either in its, in, in its appearance or its state of health, because I can't. There's a frustration in that, but there's also a relief in putting down the idea that I should be in charge of it, I should be in control. I think a lot of our suffering actually comes more from that belief than from the fact of being not in control. Then the Vedana, or feelings, is it the river of pleasant and unpleasant. If we let them define us, then we're in a constant state of enslavement to them. We become a person whose happiness depends entirely on a constant flow of pleasant sensation and then our only escape from the pleasant the unpleasant is to go looking for pleasant there's also a relief a peace to when we let go of trying to control that perceptions are conditioned as i've said and we can't often can't help the perceptions that arise in our mind and sometimes they're, they're blatantly erroneous. Sometimes they're distorted. The Buddha likened them to a mirage. And they limit and blind us often. And yes, we can learn new ones, but the old ones persist. And the sankharas, the, the fabrications, the constructs, the stories and meanings we give to ourselves and the world and our actions built from our perceptions. The dukkha is that we, we tend to imprison ourselves in them, to torment ourselves with them, inflate ourselves with them. We have to keep affirming or denying them. You know, even, the, even the good ones need propping up. Sometimes we oppress one another with them. And if we take them to be some kind of solid reality, we also miss the potential for different experiences. Because there's also another side of this, that the beauty of the empty nature of perceptions and stories is that they're flexible. So we can start to replace the dysfunctional ones with more functional ones or onward leading ones. And the, the perceptions of Anicca and Anatta themselves are examples of onward leading perceptions. And vijnana or consciousness, maybe it's a little less obvious what the drawback of identification with that is. But the experience of consciousness is actually inseparable from the other four. Um, other four candors, the other four types of experience that are constantly changing. And if we identify as the knower of them, if we, we assume ourselves to be the separate entity that, that knows them, we, we're reinforcing that delusion of a permanent self-existence with all the pitfalls that that contains. So the Buddha said that a wise person cultivates the perspective of not-self in relation to all these things, whether they're past or present or future, subtle or gross, near or far, internal or external, in relation to each of these five streams of experience to wisely reflect, this is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. 
And this isn't, it's not dissociation, but it's not clinging to an identity that's formed out of them or based upon them or in reaction to them. Because even refusing an identity or rejecting an identity is taking an identity, isn't it? Not my problem, not my community, not my car that's blocking yours in the car park, whatever. (laughs) So when when the five bhikkhus heard this teaching on not-self, they experienced complete awakening on the spot. Complete liberation, evaporation of every last trace of the conceit that I am. I have to say that it's pretty rare. (laughs) And actually there are plenty of other examples in the suttas of people who heard this teaching and took some time to get it. So let us not be discouraged. So how about this sense of self that keeps arising and re-arising? And it does do that. It will do that right up to the last stage of awakening this me that's the subject of so much concern been reflecting that maybe one of the reasons for our confusion and concern around it is that we this is the kind of thing in which I have the greatest overabundance of data you know, we have more data about our own experience than anything else, so the inconsistencies of it you know, are, feel overwhelming sometimes. And it's, it's natural that we would reflect on ourselves, trying to make sense of that experience, to solve that sense of something lacking or not quite right. And to actually guide ourselves on this path of waking up out of suffering. So how do we do this reflecting? I've said this before, I think, but I'm always struck here how many mirrors there are surrounding us when we're on retreats. I was used to a practice environment that was pretty well devoid of mirrors but here there's an endless temptation when there's not much going on to keep inspecting oneself for dharma progress in the mirror (laughs) but whether you maybe you don't do that maybe you've covered the mirror in your room and or maybe you're just not you don't have quite the same conditioning that i do about self-inspection in the mirror but you know, literally or metaphorically, we, we're trying to get a readout on who we are and how we're doing, looking at ourselves. So, you know, and, and also actually today, given the, the ubiquity of social media and photographs, you know, we've all seen many photographs of ourselves, the things that, thing that was unthinkable was, didn't exist in the time of the Buddha. Probably a mirror would have been a luxury. Or film. Or our Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. You know, many of us in the room may be a bit too old to have really got heavily into that. But uh, I think about teenage the teenagers in my family and who I know it's like we're in a in a world that is inviting or kind of creating more and more tendency towards self-consciousness to looking at ourselves as an entity from outside so we might look in this mirror and you know think oh I'm looking old today got two more spots and three more wrinkles and ten more gray hairs and I don't know if you know the term Vipassana facelift, but you might be checking yourself for your Vipassana facelift. And notice sometimes my Vipassana facelift has turned into a Vipassana frown, (laughs) trying too hard, and wondering what the other yogis think of me and what the teachers think of me and will my partner and friends and colleagues like me when I go home. 
Will I ever be happy? Will I ever nail this practice? Will I ever be enlightened? Well, sometimes we can be on a roll and we can think, yeah, I'm looking great. I've, I think I've got it here. I'm happy and relaxed. And then, oh, I'm not sure. And uh, thoughts like, you know, well, okay, when I'm, when I'm a bit fitter and thinner, healthier, when I know more, I know more Dharma concepts, when I'm a better meditator, when I'm better rested, when I, my finances are more secure, when I've found the right person, the right friends, the right job, when I've sorted my life out, healed this painful relationship or that difficult memory, then I will be happy. I don't deserve to be happy now. And this is what the Buddha called unwise or inappropriate attention, ayoniso manasikara. Manasikara is mental activity or attention. Because it reinforces that distortion of perception, that delusion that there's this entity called me that can be made lastingly happy when I just get the conditions lined up properly in future. As if what the future me wants is going to be identical with what I want now. You know, this is one of the sources of suffering is actually getting what we want. (laughs) What we wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And that sense of that kind of sense of self, it just generally relates to the present moment as a means to an end, which is always in the future. Isn't it? So we, in that way, will never be good enough. It's actually quite a, a, it's a little practice I had going a while ago. Of just every time I caught sight of myself in the mirror, I'd just say, oh, not good enough. It's recognizing that little blip towards thinking there's something else that needs to be done. You know, not to believe it, but just to alert myself to that movement in the mind. Ajahn Sumedho used to say that you can never perfect the personality. So the opposite of this unwise or inappropriate attention is yonaso manasikara. And the the most beautiful way of describing this, I think, um, for me, is uh, Kitty Saros, who talks about placing... So the yoniso, yoni is the womb. It's an interesting word. What does that mean? Uh, attention in the womb. And he talks about placing the thoughts in the womb of awareness. Returning them to the womb of awareness out of which they arose. Holding them with kindness and seeing them seeing them as the leaves of the plantain tree and letting them dissolve, release themselves back into the field of potentiality out of which the next moment will arise. So the question to be asking is not who's in the mirror but what's happening now in this moment of human becoming. There's just seeing, hearing, perhaps hoping, fearing, liking, disliking, remembering, planning, feeling, thinking, anticipating, here, now. Some of these things feel that they're just happening and sometimes we feel ourselves actively doing them. Greg, the other morning, spoke about being mindful of intention or volition. 
Because it's much more important what we, in inverted commas, are doing um, than what we, in inverted commas, are. So when you look in the mirror, literal or metaphorical, what are you doing? The Buddha said to Rahula, just as you would look in a mirror, so you should reflect on your actions. Are they leading to harm for yourself or for others or to benefit? Because with our thoughts and our actions and intentions, we are wearing tracks in in our mind. It's actually my doing that shapes the human becoming that I experience as me. This is the meaning of karma. So the uh, activity of yonistomanasikara, of this wise attention, notices this is suffering, this is the end of suffering, this is clinging, this is release. And just this activity of attending wisely, again, is a form of skillful action of good karma because it illuminates our way out of suffering. And we see what happens when I grasp onto something, what happens when I let go. So if you've got a, if you're still with me and you've got the energy, I'd just like to invite a little thought experiment. And this is just using the four of the kind of traditional meta phrases, M-E-T-T-A, not M-E-T-A, which may not be the phrases that you use, but just taking up the phrase, for example, may I be safe. What's it like to wish for yourself to be that, to be safe? How much control do you have over that, really? What if you just do a little tweak in your mind and may I do safe? May I, and what I mean by that is, may I appreciate such safety as is here right now? May I give safety to myself and to others? To me, that feels pretty different. The same with the second phrase, may I be happy. What's it like to uh, aspire instead, may I do happy? May I give or cause happiness? for myself and for others. Now I give rise to happiness. May I be healthy or may I do healthy? We can't control the status of our health, but we can aspire to do healthy by giving the best possible care to this body and to those of others. May I live with ease. Can't really control very much how easeful our life situation or circumstances. But in this moment, can I do ease? What would that feel like? to just relax whatever internal contention there is with this moment just now. To notice if I'm making a problem of something that I could just 
relax or release. So you might notice that there's a difference between demanding of something of life or when we give something to life. And that there's a kind of happiness that comes from benevolent intention rather than from trying to perfect me and the circumstances by which I'm defining myself in the moment. And that for me is, is, feels very empowering it, it leaves me with a feeling of potential rather than being stuck in a particular predicament that's defined by identification with circumstance. So this, this realisation of emptiness at the core of our being has the potential to flower as a sense of fullness and potentiality of spontaneity and creativity rather than a sense of lack. When we understand things as they actually are, we can become intimate with all of life and no longer separate and alone. So this teaching or practice of anatta is not about going for going out looking for experiences of oneness or oceanic oneness by eradicating or outsmarting the processes of selfing and identification but about understanding them and putting them to wise use so we we learn in the course of our practice how to make skillful use of provisional identities whilst letting them be transparent so that the sense of self no longer becomes burdensome in any way. We don't have to go looking for anatta, for not-self, because the harder we look, the more atta is there. So we, we quit searching and we just continue to observe patiently and as honestly and kindly as we can the unfolding of experience of this human becoming. And let ourself and our mind or this heart and mind rest. This is a poem from one of the one of the poems of the uh, first enlightened nuns and Matty's Matty Weingast's translation. Another Anyatara, which means anonymous. I was young when I left home. And for years I rambled around. My practice, sitting, walking and hoping. At first everything was new. I didn't notice my skin drying up or my hair turning grey. Then one morning there I was, an old woman. Where had I gotten in all those years on the path? That night I slept out in a field and it rained. It felt like I belonged there, miserable and alone in the mud. In the morning I went to the nearest monastery and threw myself down. A nun took me in and taught me. This body, this mind, this world, where they come from, where they go, what they are, what they are not. That night I went out to sit in the field and it rained. It felt like I belonged there, 
every drop of water telling me I was home. Don't worry, my sisters. When the road reaches it at its end, you'll know it. Phenomena on every plane of being are constantly arising and disappearing. Thus they are forever fresh, always new and inexhaustible. Like dreams without solid substance, they can never become rigid or binding. The universe exists in a deep elusive way that can never be grasped or frozen. Why feel obsessive desire or hatred for it, thereby creating illusory bonds? The noble way of Mahamudra never engages in the drama of imprisonment and release. The sage of Mahamudra has absolutely no distractions because no war against distractions has ever been declared. This nobility and gentleness alone, this non-violence of thought and action, is the traceless path of all Buddhas. To walk this all-embracing way is the bliss of Buddhahood. Thank you for listening. Come back for chanting if you'd like to carry on. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.